those and then pray as we jump in. Father, we do pray for um, Rachel's cousin and that just went through or is going through the, this bout with cancer. And thank you for Rachel's boldness and courage, just um, granting that. That's what we all need to speak up, to talk, to speak to you. And yet I thank you um, for her being able to do that in written form. I pray that that would be meaningful and helpful uh, and that you would drive those truths home, um, Holy Spirit, and that you would grant repentance. Lord, we thank you for um, Steve's opportunity with nurses, oh Lord God, just his, his uh, just always being willing and ready to uh, give an answer for the hope that he has inside and to speak the truth. We pray that some of those seeds sown would bear fruit, oh Lord God, um, and that you would bless them. We thank you for Mike and Lori's opportunity with their friend um, to speak um, of you, Lord Jesus, and to speak the gospel. And we just pray that that would bear fruit as well. Lord, the gospel is the core of who we are. It's you, Lord Jesus. Um, and uh, we, we are so thankful. And uh, we're thankful for the life and the people you've brought us into. Um, we thank you for giving us yourself, um, Lord, which is the treasure. You are the treasure. And uh, so we just thank you. Pray for this time this morning as we continue to think about doctrine and what your word teaches. Um, grant good discussion and understanding and help. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we are on uh, spheres of authority. So we're towards the end of uh, the doctrinal statement. It's page 12 in mine, but I think my page, I, the version I'm looking at, there was a couple, it's 11, thank you. So 11, um, uh, we're talking about spheres of authority. We talked about the church. Um, spheres of authority um, really, it's one of those things that is timeless. Um, and yet uh, what happened with COVID and the government restrictions and, um, and all of that kind of re, uh, reinvigorated, it, re, reinvigorated that discussion and brought it to the fore. Uh, and so... Uh, we, uh, I think it was February 2021, even before we had moved here, we kind of addressed that topic a little bit. It's one of those things to keep coming back to, uh, so that uh, it's, it's so important we decided to, like I said, it's a timeless truth, so we put it in both the member doctrinal statement and in this one. This one's a little bit more expanded, uh, as you will see. Uh, just as a side note, uh, if you guys are interested more and just kind of like, since we're kind of getting through all the COVID stuff and just kind of looking back, out of perspective, I have a, a few copies of some book, um, a books called God Versus Government, produced by um, Nathan Buznitz and James Coates, who are guys that are connected with the Master Seminary. It's a good little book and a good little historical retrospect. So if you don't, um, if you're interested in that, I, like I said, I have about six copies that you guys are welcome to read, and it talks about this kind of stuff. Um, so it, it it might be if you want to think about this more, that would be a good resource for you. Anyway. We believe that all legitimate authority is a delegated stewardship from God, who alone has ultimate authority and holds all human authorities accountable. And you see that in various places, um, but you see it especially in Daniel. Daniel deals a lot with authority and who's in charge, um, and um, so you see that in Daniel 4. Uh, the Lord alone is supreme over all and has all authority. We know that and we understand that. But he delegates authority. He delegates authority to different entities. We believe that God has delegated different spheres of authority to the family, church, and the state, uh, and that each sphere is directly accountable to Christ within that sphere. 
So uh, what you want to think about when you think about this, you want to think about a Venn diagram. That's essentially what we're talking about here. So you've seen those pictures, right? You get the three interlocking, overlapping rings. That's what we're talking about. Uh, we don't, um, sometimes in the past, the church hasn't conceived of it that way. They've conceived of the state over the church. Um, but that's not how we want to think about it. We want to think about it just like that Venn diagram where each sphere, family, church, and state, has their lane, so to speak. There's overlap between those, as we'll talk about here, but they are responsible to God directly for different things. Uh, they're responsible to God directly for different things. Uh, you can see that in passages like John 19. Uh, Jesus is talking to Pilate, and he says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And so God delegates authority to the state, to the family, to the church, and he holds them responsible to do what they're called to do within their sphere. Uh, it's a very important kind of concept, and you see it, the fingerprints of that throughout the scriptures. We believe that the family has primary responsibility for health and welfare, as well as general and spiritual education. Uh, we're going to have a series on the family coming up in a few weeks, um, and we're going to talk more about this, but... Um, Ephesians 6.4, which isn't in here, but it's a, another good passage that expresses that idea. Uh, fathers, raise your children in the instruction, and in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, and so there's, there's a responsibility, there's an authority given to the family. Health and welfare, um, you see that from 1 Timothy 5, that the family is called to care for one another, uh, even um, with matters of old age, etc. So and then, of course, education, spiritual education is given to the fathers uh, for bringing up their family. Uh, and then even more generally, um, how do you live in society, right? General education. So uh, we believe the church has delegated many spiritual responsibilities for Christ. See above under church, right? So we went through this big old section on the church, but there's multiple responsibilities. The primary mission, of course, being the propagation of the gospel. Uh, so we're just kind of summarizing that there. We believe that the state is responsible before God to use the power of the sword to punish evil and reward good, and so provide the conditions for people to pursue God's mandate to be image bearers for God's glory. The uh, government starts pre-fall because Adam is called to be a king and a priest over God's creation. Um, and really what you see is humanity is supposed to uh, use the raw materials that God has created, the good world that God has created, and organize those, um, create um, uh, culture, if you will, if, um, to, to glorify God. All of it's supposed to be aimed at God's glory. So when you get into the ideas of the state, uh, it's supposed to provide the conditions such that that can happen. Uh, of course, with the fall, then you introduce things, then you really introduce the sword. Um, Genesis 9 um, uh, introduces capital punishment. Uh, Romans 13 mentions the sword, and I think that's just a, a, a shorthand way of saying the state has the power to uh, coerce obedience up to and including the ultimate um, punishment, meaning death. Um, but if you look at Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, both of those passages that have been bantered about um, the last couple of years a great deal, basically both of those passages say the same thing. What's the state responsible for in a big picture sense, punishing evil and rewarding good. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, 
And uh, what else did we go on here? We believe that although there is some overlapping area of concern between these spheres where cooperation may be beneficial, each sphere must recognize the limits of its God-delegated authority and operate accordingly to do what is right and good. In particular, we believe that the state has no authority to interfere in matters of worship and mission commanded to the church by Christ. Though the church should inform the state on what is good and evil, should pray for governmental leaders, and should have a generally submissive, peaceful attitude to the state, even when it does not obey the state's mandates. So um, when you talk in Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2, when it talks about the state is supposed to punish evil and reward good, that's according to God's standards, uh, good and evil according to God's standards. So, and you see this um, even in the, um, the Old Testament, um, well, especially, but um, you see that the king is kind of the head of the government, so to speak, um, but then God says, all right, I'm above the king. I'm going to send messengers to the king to tell him what's right and what's wrong, uh, namely the prophets. And then the prophets, let's say like Jeremiah, I'm reading through Jeremiah right now in uh, my morning devotions, and Jeremiah gets hammered um, by the government. He doesn't resist in the sense of he tells the king and the people, hey, you're, what you're doing is wrong, but then he gets, you know, uh, punished, he gets confined, he gets all of these things. You don't see him, like, resisting or rabble-rousing when he's doing that. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind, even when we must disobey the government. That doesn't mean you're, like, aiming for the overthrow of that government or rabble-rousing. It means that, sorry, we cannot, uh, we cannot obey you in this case. Um, what is important to keep in mind is that idea of overlapping area of concern. So you can think of a situation where, um, let's say, um, you know, something like child abuse, right, that's happening in the home. So the family is responsible for that child and is supposed to um, care for that child. Well, obviously, with child abuse happening, that's the exact opposite. The state still has um, a responsibility in that situation to protect a citizen. Um, and so there is kind of these overlapping areas um, that, that do happen. Um, and so even things like, um, well, if you were to consider abuse in the church or things like that, that would be an overlapping area of concern uh, where the state might step in. But there's boundaries to those things. There's limits. Um, and so uh, a lot of those issues take wisdom as happened when we were considering a lot of those issues with COVID. So, uh, but that's the basic um, idea of spheres of authority. What's most important about this is to have that concept in your mind because a lot of, let's say Christians even historically get themselves into a bind when they say, well, the state said it and they're not, they're not, they're not telling me to sin, so I must go along with it. And that's actually not true. Of course, if the state tells you to sin, um, you're not going to do that. But if there's things that the state is calling you to do that it just doesn't have the authority to even speak to, um, then you've got to recognize that and wade through those issues. Uh, so it's a little more complex um, than that. What, where you especially, I think, is important to bring to bear, um, I'm actually reading a history of Nazi Germany right now. It's very interesting. But what you see is a lot of the, the Protestants uh, in that country, right, the home of Luther kind of just knuckled under um, during the, the, the Nazi take, takeover um, because of this issue. Uh, they didn't recognize the limits of the state's authority and when to say, no, we can't do that. 
Um, and so that's why it's pertinent to keep that mindset as we go into the um, future. So um, we, do, we do know things will get worse, and we do know that there's a great history of state-sponsored uh, persecution against Christians. So we want to have these matters in, in hand. So any uh, questions, comments, concerns on this? And it's a little bit, so you have, there is such a thing as a good state, right? Um, so God has a design for a good state. There will be politics in that sense in the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's the pure and righteous kingdom. So the merger of um, uh, people and state or church and state will happen um, in eternity, but Tony's right. Like you look at a book like Daniel, or even just walking through the test, um, the the whole of Scripture, right? You do see the state often going against God's kingdom, right? Uh, not always, right? And not in all that what is due. And we're still called to pray for the state and to pray for peace that we might proclaim the truth. But often, you see that where the state is heading um, is exact opposite where God wants it to be heading. Um, so that's not a new thing, um, but uh, you need to have an understanding of how those things overlap. Again, this is where the idea of local church as embassy of the future kingdom is helpful. We are an embassy of the future kingdom. We speak for King Jesus. His kingdom is not on earth yet fully, um, only in a representative fashion is it on earth, and yet it will be. Um, and so there you have to think of the church as that embassy in its relation to the state, um, and uh, that's that's an important that's that's what we're talking about with these things, um, especially with a state that's going ag often, not always, going against um, uh, where God wants um, things to go. So, yeah. the questions or comments. Okay. Let's talk about angels. Now, you will notice there was no statement in the member declaration of faith on angels at all. Not because a scripture doesn't speak to them. It obviously does. Uh, but it's kind of one of those things that um, even historically in the church has not been like... It's, impo it's important to a point, but if you remember those ranks of doctrine, like level one is the gospel and things that you must believe in order to be saved. Level two is things that have historically and traditionally divided um, Christians. They're both Christians, but they've divided Christians in terms of denominations and such. Uh, they're, very, they're important issues. They're important enough not to be fellowshipping together and members together in the same church. Level three uh, is things that are still important, and yet you could still be members in the same church. 
this is kind of like, and then level four is like uh, matters of conviction that you could go one way or the other on them, right? Um, so this is kind of like level three kind of stuff. Um, and uh, it's, that's why it's not in the member doctrinal statement. Um, it's important to have a, a view of, a, a proper view of angels, but it's not the most important thing. And you could differ probably a fair amount in your belief on angels and how on um, demonic forces and how they all work and yet still be members of the same local church. That's why it's kind of in a level three category. So uh, let's talk about angels though. We believe that God created an innumerable company of sinless, personal spirit beings known as angels, as a higher order of creatures than man. So angels are a higher order of creature than man. That's Hebrews 1.14, Psalm 8, 5, Colossians 1.16. You see that um, throughout. We believe there are different orders and ranks of angels originally organized for specific tasks by God. And again, you can see this peppered through Scripture that there's, there's different ranks. You've got archangels and, um, you know, those un ranked under them. Um, what does that look like? How does that look? I have no idea. Um, it's like, it's not the most important thing in Scripture, but it does allude to it. So it's real. It's there. However, after their creation as innocent beings and prior to the fall of man, we believe that a number of these angels rebelled against God, led by Satan, in introducing sin into the universe, though not the earthly realm yet, and forming a fixed camp of holy angels and a fixed camp of demons. Um, and you can kind of see this throughout, that there's now a fixed camp of, you can call them holy angels, elect angels, whatever you want to call them, and then demons, and there's an ongoing war between the two in the heavenly realms. Uh, there's two fixed camps, uh, so there's no conversion uh, between, between the two. Um, any questions just on that general concept before we go into categories of teaching on this? You can look up the scriptures later if you if there's um, any confusion on those those points. So, okay, holy angels. As the primary Old Testament and New Testament vocabulary referring to these holy beings indicates, we believe that the primary function of holy angels is that of messengers. So, Old Testament word is malach. Uh, and the New Testament word is angelos, from which we get the word angel. So, but that, you know, we just kind of, when we think angel, we think whatever we think about, a spiritual, a spiritual being. But both words, both angelos and malach, uh, refer to a messenger. That's their first and foremost reference. So by messenger, you can kind of think of, it's not just, hey, I'm delivering a letter. It's more like uh, someone who's authorized to speak and, in some cases, act. Uh, one who has a commission. You could think about it like that. So that's how you see them act in uh, the scriptures. Um, we believe the primary function of holy angels is that of messengers, ministers and agents who worship God, deliver revelation from God, uh, and carry out a variety of commissions from God in the world. So even in Revelation, um, the, even, even in the first few verses, there's kind of this chain where God um, gives revelation to Jesus to give to angels, to give to John, right? So there's like, uh, they, they do that quite often. Um, under commission from God, they also minister to humans who are to inherit salvation. Though they are never to be worshipped since they are creatures, you always see 
angels refusing worship. And they just say, hey, I'm a creature like you. Don't worship me. Uh, you see John, like, at the end of Revelation, he's, like, trying to bow down for this angel that's showing him all this cool stuff. And he's like, no, I'm a fellow servant with you. Uh, worship God. Um, and so that's, that's important to, to bring to bear there. Uh, so that's holy or elect angels. Any questions? Okay, Satan. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed it, Pat. Sorry. Um, I think uh, if I remember when I was reading up on this, um, like the rich man and Lazarus, you see um, like angels take him when he dies to go to like um, to Abraham's bosom. Uh, that's possible support. The other one is in the Gospels um, when Jesus says, you know, talking about children, um, the angels of these little ones always see the face of my father. That's probably the strongest text for something like that. Um, there's no doubt um, because there are scriptures that affirm that angels in general do um, minister and serve on behalf of those who are to inherit salvation. That's what Hebrews talks about. So that's true. As far as like a one-to-one -one correspondence, right? Like, okay, uh, Angel Bob is guarding Chris, right? Um, uh, and, or, or something like that. Like, there's just no, there's not enough scriptural evidence to be dogmatic on that point. However, it is a truth that, that um, angels are involved in serving and ministering. You get glimpses of it. Sometimes the veil kind of gets torn back a little bit, especially like in Daniel, right? And you see kind of this cosmic war that's going on behind the scenes, right? The, the world and the universe are at war. They are. Uh, it doesn't feel like that, and that's part of Satan's scheme to make us feel like it's peacetime. But um, there's this cosmic war that's going on behind the scenes uh, at, um, at a spiritual level, even while it's also going on at a, at a physical level. And so, um, so, and then there's like the angels ministering to, the, to those who inherit salvation. At a, um, and you see that in the Gospels too, right? Like you see that um, a little bit of the veil torn back with the demon possession and as Jesus is coming in and he's showing, here's what the kingdom looks like, and it's casting out Satan um, and things like that. So, sorry, I kind of went farther afield from your original question. But I, I think the seeing their fa the, the children and seeing faces in, in heaven, I think that's probably the strongest text for that. So, uh, okay, I think Lori was next and then Gary. Yeah, yeah, that's another text, and like um, that, um, that uh, eventually gets used, uh, well, by the devil <laughs> trying to tempt Jesus. Um, but again, the most we can probably say from that is there's angels involved, whether there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, and what, what that looks like, and I don't think we know, really. So it's enough to know. And the thing is, here's the tricky thing about talking about angels stuff. Scripture's never like, focus on angels and try to figure that all out, right? It's just kind of like a happenstance that sometimes you see the kind of the veil torn back a little bit and you say, oh, there's a little bit more going on here than meets the eye. And so it's not like you spend a great deal of time on it. Again, I'm just, it'll be great to see, uh, <laughs> it'll be amazing to see uh, God revealing these things like, oh, that's what was going on. Again, the instant replay of history, both from a spiritual and a physical perspective will, so uh, I'm interested in that, so... <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, Gary. Yeah, so um, that's that's a so Lucifer that that um, that name uh, I think it's the Latin if I remember, and it's like day of the dawn, day star of the dawn, and that's taken out of there's two passages, one in Isaiah 14, and the other in Ezekiel 28, um, that the some in the church have taken to refer to the fall of Satan. I personally don't hold to that. Um, I believe those are talking about human kings in a kind of uh, majestic, cosmic ways. Um, but the most we can, um, and I, I, th I think some of these things will, um, uh, I can't remember how much we address in this paragraph, but basically all we know is that um, Satan sinned and fell and before the creation of man, and that's that's almost all we know, and so uh, I don't think uh, even even whether he bore that name of Lucifer is um, it, because the only passage that supports that I think is referring to a human king. I think is is questionable. So whoever he is, whatever his name is, right, he becomes the adversary. That's what Satan means. Uh, it's a Hebrew word that means adversary. That's what that's what the word means. So. Um, let's read about him. We believe that Satan is the arch enemy of God and his people, though he is still subject to God and controlled by God for his own purposes. You see that in Job. Like, Satan's trying to do his thing, but God's totally in control. Satan has to ask for permission um, to do those things. We believe that, all God, uh, the, that although God initially commissioned Adam as his steward king and priest over the earthly um, realm by submitting to the temptation of the satanically empowered serpent in Eden, Satan became the ruler of the world with those in it naturally, though not always consciously, under the power, under his power in their sinful nature. Um, it, we know that God has, um, from, from Genesis 1, gave a stewardship uh, commission to Adam and his progeny to rule the world. So what happened by the satanically empowered serpent in Genesis 1 and Adam essentially yielding to him is that now Satan is the ruler of the world. And that is amply affirmed. We kind of, it's like, really? Isn't God the ruler of the world? Well, yes, God is ultimately in control. And yet um, we do see, even in the temptation of Jesus um, and 1 John uh, 5, 19 Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that everyone is naturally the child of Satan uh, and only becomes a child of God um, through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And Satan is the ruler of the world. He's the prince of the power of the air. Um, and again, um, we don't think about that too much, unfortunately, uh, because, again, one of the things that Satan likes to do is to, likes us to think we're at peacetime. No, no, no. There's no such thing as the devil kind of orchestrating things in the world, right? And it's a great tactic of his um, so that we don't think about that and also uh, live in light of that, especially as Christians. Um, there are two there are, um, thus there are only two camps of people in the world, those with Satan as their spiritual father and those rescued from the power of Satan with God as their father. Um, two camps, holy angels and demons, there's two camps of humans. There's only two. 
Uh, there's no neutral territory here um, since the fall. Uh, Satan opposes God and his people in many different ways, including deception, temptation, accusation. Uh, that's another one of his names, the accuser, uh, diabolos, you know, devil, uh, is that idea of slanderer, the accuser. You see that in Zechariah 4, where uh, Satan is uh, accusing before the throne room uh, a particular individual. Um, Joshua the high priest is his name. And, um, and so that's one of the things he does. Accusation before God, blinding people from responding to the gospel. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 talks about, that the, the God of this world, referring to Satan, is blinding um, the minds of unbelievers. Um, you even see that in the parable of the soils, right? The, bird co- the birds come in and snatch away the seed, and uh, that's, that's part of, there's demonic influence, there's um, Satan's influence in that. And mobilizing world systems to oppose God's people and aims. I mean, again, that's littered through the New Testament and the Old Testament, that uh, does that mean that every single government is sinful? Not necessarily, but you do see, again, talking about governments, that often when you see governments doing very wicked and horrific things, that Satan's behind the scenes doing that. Um, we are still called, the, the, the human leaders of those governments are still responsible to do what is right and good, and we pray for our leaders, and yet Satan's kind of behind the streams, scenes in a lot of ways pulling the strings, right? Um, that's what the scriptures lead us to believe uh, and to understand. We believe that while Christ dealt the decisive blow against Satan and his rule over the world at the cross, the, first remo- the final removal of Satan from the world into judgment of the lake of fire will come after his temporary binding during the millennium kingdom. So Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years, millennial kingdom, and then there's, um, Satan's going to deceive the nations again and bring them up against Christ. They're going to get consumed with fire from heaven and then the new heavens and the new earth, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. So, um, which is interesting because he's a spirit being, so what does it mean for him to get thrown into the lake of fire? Is that just imagery? Somehow, it's, it, God's going to keep him under punishment for eternity um, uh, in, through all of this. So that's what the scriptures say about Satan. As far as like how he fell, scriptures don't really give us a lot of info, other than he had to, right? Um, at some point... Um, and even being in the, the, the presence of God, being an angel, period, what, of whatever rank, um, to then uh, be in the presence of God and then to rebel against um, that knowledge of who God is um, and become the archenemy of God. So uh, any questions, comments on this? I guess the most what I would want to impress upon you, because of, let's just say, Western culture and its development, we like a scientific explanation for things. We don't like to talk about spiritual forces being involved in the world. Uh, Different areas of the world, um, they're very aware of spiritual forces being involved. And at least for the West, it seems like that's part of Satan's tactic is just to get us to ignore it. Uh, when the scriptures clearly indicate that it's there. Now, you can go overboard with this, right? That's the thing, is like, you definitely can go overboard and see a, a demon behind every corner. That's not what we're saying. But we're trying to say, well, here's what the scriptures do say about it, and this should drive us to prayer, right? Because like Paul says in Ephesians 6, uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against 
the spiritual forces in the evil places. So as we as the church are uh, proclaiming the gospel, a lot of the, the armor that's going on in Ephesians 6 uh, in, um, is really a lot of synonyms for the gospel and believing the truths of the gospel and carrying the gospel forward. Um, and um, But th- there's that idea of there's a real enemy, we need to be really prayerful, and we need to use the means of grace that God has given through his word and through the gospel even specifically. So... Uh, let's talk about demons real quick. Demons. We believe that physical... Oh, last thing. So, sorry. Let me back up. Last thing... Whoa. My eyes skipped down. Sorry about that. Demons. There we go. We're still there. Uh, we believe that demonic spiritual forces are active in the world under the rule of Satan and thus pursue his aims at his bidding. So you kind of see that even in Matthew 12... When Jesus, remember when the Pharisees kind of say, hey, you're doing this by the power of Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan. Um, and what you don't see Jesus do is he's like, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as demonic forces in the world. What he does say, actually, is how can he acknowledges Satan has a kingdom uh, over against, essentially, God's kingdom. And so... Um, and that kingdom, Satan's kingdom, of course, consists of people who are under doing his bidding, but also the, uh, the demonic forces. He acknowledges that that's a, that's a valid scenario, but not for me because of who I am, because I have the Spirit of God working in me. So it is a reality that Satan has um, control over demons and also has everyone naturally as his dupes in the world. So... Um, Thus, we believe that these demons are arrayed against God and his people, seeking the downfall of Christians, and that it is the responsibility of Christians to stand against the devil, his schemes, and his forces through standing firm in the gospel and its proclamation. We believe that Satan and his demons stand behind governments, ideologies, and religions opposed to God and his people. Uh, So you even, like in Daniel, you see the prince of the Persia and the prince of Greece and those sorts of guys. Those Those are forces that stand behind uh, the governments of uh, Persia and uh, um, Greece. So there you see the veil being lifted back just a tad to understand that, yeah, a lot of the world systems and authorities and what's going on there, there, there is a demonic influence and, and, and force behind them. So... Um, uh, but you also see that ideologies and religions counterfeit. Satan loves to counterfeit, right? So you see counterfeit um, versions either of Christianity or some other religion. Uh, that it, Scripture talks about the worship of demons, that like even in 1 Corinthians 10, that pagans, though they're sacrificing to this god, really what's behind the god is some sort of demon uh, and demonic force. So false worship is demonic in nature. Um, we see that. We believe that demon possession is real, even today, and can be behind physical and mental maladies. So you see that in the Gospels, that someone gets possessed by a demon, and yes, there's something spiritual and weird going on there, uh, even mentally weird going on there, but also physically things that are going on there. Does that mean that every physical malady has a demonic force behind it? No, it just says that it can happen. Uh, When and how? I don't know, Um, but... Uh, we know from Scripture that it can happen. 
we believe that since a true believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, they cannot be indwelt by an unclean spirit. So if you're a believer and in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you, you cannot be indwelt, you cannot be demon-possessed. That's what we're trying to say here. You're filled by the Spirit of God, there's no way you can be possessed by a demon. You can be oppressed and attacked externally um, in a variety of ways, but that does not mean that um, you can be possessed. If you're a genuine believer, um, you cannot be possessed by an unclean spirit. Questions? So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to be accurate with what Scripture says. We are neither trying to be totally like, oh, spiritual forces, we don't believe in that anymore, kind of like ghosts or something like that, right? We're, not, we're, we're trying not to be overly rationalistic, and we're also not trying to like see a demon behind every door, right? So those are the two ways you can fall off the horse, right? But you're trying to be accurate to, well, Scripture does acknowledge this, and it's true. Uh, how do we encounter that? What does that look like? There's a lot of ways in which we, um, we can say, we can paint in general terms, and yet um, the specifics, well, regardless, we're called in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil um, to do essentially the same thing. So whether you give it the name demonic or not is not so important as long as you're standing firm and uh, the way God wants you to, through prayer, through the word, through the scriptures, through the gospel, through all those sorts of things, so... There was a hand. Uh, Ken. Um, well, influences. So you got to remember, as a Christian, First John, greater is he in you that is he that is in the world, right? So uh, while there may be an ex- I think of it in terms of external pressure. Let's think about it like that, right? So there can be an external attack or influence, and yet in such a way that a Christian never needs to succumb to that. Doesn't mean that there's not an effect, but in terms of you sinning, there is absolutely... You're the, if you sin, it's your fault. Uh, there's no such thing as the devil made me do it, right? Um, you're, you, you may have been influenced, but you're never in a position where you have to give in um, to sin. So... Uh, that that is important and imperative to keep in mind. So, um, yeah. Sometimes I'll I will. Um, there are times um, even there are times when I just feel like um, I'm just really struggling with temptation of a variety of sorts, and I'll pray and say, Lord, I don't know if this is just my own flesh, or you know some sort of demonic influence is happening. But regardless, Lord, I need your strength, I need your power, I need your grace, Holy Spirit, to, uh, to obey, to love you, and to do what you're calling me to do. So, um, and so you don't need to name it in that sense, right? But you still need to be ultimately dependent on God and the power of the Spirit of God no matter what. Because, you know, you're struggling, it's one of three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Um, and, but you're called to do the same thing in either case, so... Okay, any others? Okay, uh, last things. 
So the last things come last. Um, makes sense? Um, it's, uh, it's appropriate. Um, so under this, there's kind of two things. When we think of last things, we're thinking we're talking eschatology. Esch- uh, that word eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton, which just means last. It's an adjective that literally means last. Um, so there are two ways to talk about eschatology. One is personal eschatology, meaning what happens when you die um, and what's going to happen to individuals. And then there's kind of the more general, like, what's all the events that are going to happen at the end? So this section encompasses both of those. So let's talk about death. Um, we believe that physical death involves no loss of our immaterial consciousness. You can see that throughout the scriptures, that when someone dies, right, we know that we have an internal component to us, a spiritual component to us, and a physical component to us that are united. That is God's design for humanity. The, it's not like the Greek said that you're, you're your soul and it's good when you die because you get rid of the body because the body's a prison for the soul. That's not the Christian idea. The Christian idea is, no, God designed us with spirit, to be spirit and body united, and so death is an enemy. Death is a bad thing. It's part of the curse of the fall. What happens is uh, your immaterial part gets separated from your physical part. Uh, how does that work, and how does that look? I don't know, uh, but it happens, and you see it in the scriptures. Um, you see it in Revelation 6 with all the martyrs under the, the, um, the altar. Um, they're, in, they're souls. That's what John says. I see the souls of these people being martyred. Uh, they're not, they don't have their resurrected bodies yet. So there's a separation. There's no loss of immaterial consciousness. That, uh, so we believe that the physical death involves no loss of our immaterial consciousness, um, that the soul of the redeemed passes immediately into the presence of Christ. So there's ample scripture to say that when you die as a believer, your consciousness, you're immediately with, in an immaterial state, the Lord. That there, is no separ- there, that there is a separation of soul and body, and that for the redeemed, such separation will continue until the first resurrection, when our soul and body will be reunited to be glorified forever with our Lord. Um, until that time, the souls of the redeemed in Christ remain in joyful fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. So even when you are with the Lord in a disembodied state or your, just your pure soul or immaterial consciousness, it's still not the ultimate desire. Um, the ultimate desire is to be reunited with a glorified body because that's what God has designed us to be, embodied creatures uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. So though when you die, it is, joyful, it is more joyful than being in a sin, sin-cursed body that fails— um, it is, and that has its own struggles with sin, so it's more joyful than being in that body, but that, what you're ultimately wanting is the resurrection, right? So that you have your soul and your body united in, in, the, in a body that is glorified forever, that's able and has the capacities to enjoy God and all of who he is forever. Uh, and that's important to remember, right? Sometimes we kind of just kind of gloss over the end of life stuff, but it is important to... And, I've had people, even since being here, ask me questions. Well, so what happens when you die? What happens with my soul, right? And, and people, uh, even some people I've talked to, not, not necessarily in this church, but, but they're like, um, 
well, wait, you're saying that there's going to be a physical new heavens and new earth, and I'm going to be physically resurrected? There's kind of this kind of fuzziness that happens that just thinks that, well, I'm just going to be a disembodied spirit with the Lord forever. And that's just not true. That's not what Scripture says. Uh, and so it's helpful as we think through uh, the end to remember that. So um, let me finish this section and we'll pause. Uh, we believe in the bodily resurrection of all men, the saved, all men, all men. Everyone's going to be resurrected. That's what the Scriptures say. We believe in the bodily resurrection of all men, the saved to eternal life, and the unsaved to judgment and everlasting punishment. So both believer and unbeliever will have a physical body uh, and even an eternal body that will not die. Uh, the one will be suited to the joys of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. The other will be suited to be able to continue under torment and punishment forever in a physical state. Um, so everyone gets resurrected. Everyone has eternal life, or at least life that lasts forever. But I kind of mentioned this, I think, last week's sermon. Eternal life is not, the, the substance isn't living forever. It's knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's what John 17, 3. The substance of eternal life is knowing and enjoying and delighting in God for all eternity. Because everyone's going to live forever. We believe that the souls of the unsaved at death are kept under punishment until the second resurrection, when the soul and the resurrection body will be united. They shall then appear at the great white throne judgment and shall be cast into hell, the lake of fire, cut off from the life of God forever. That doesn't mean that God is not present. God is present everywhere in his universe. But what the scriptures say is that Whereas in heaven, he, or in the new heavens and the new earth, he is, pres he is present to bless. Uh, in hell, his presence is there only to punish and to torment for all eternity. Um, and with a, with a body perfectly suited to that. Um, hell is a horrific thing. Uh, it's designed by God to be horrific, to show how horrific our sin is and how horrifically in need of the Savior we are which is why the cross was so horrific. It all makes sense, right? That Christ endured the eternal weight of punishment uh, that um, people uh, who would entrust themselves to him deserve, and um, but he bore that in their place to rescue us from such a state to himself to enjoy him for all eternity. Um, it's a sober thing. We don't like to talk about death in our society. We don't like to talk about hell, certainly, uh, but it's real, and it motivates us, right? It motivates us as believers to give great thanks and praise, and it motivates us also to pro be proclaimers of the gospel so that uh, I don't want anyone, even the worst person in humanity, I don't want to endure that. Um, and uh, we want people to come to know Christ. Um, so uh, you want to know those things. You want to know those things about death and personal eschatology, so that you can live and act rightly. So we're over time. If you guys got questions, please come up to me and ask. Um, let's go ahead and pray, though. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so, so, so much for rescuing us from your own wrath. Um, Lord, you, Lord Jesus, you are the judge, um, and we deserve your, your condemnation. We deserve your eternal punishment. That is what our sin deserves. And yet you have, by your grace, called us 
we couldn't make ourselves be alive again, and yet you, through the Spirit, have called your people, uh, those whom, for whom you died, to, to place their trust in you, to repent. Oh, Lord God, keep us, um, uh, keep us mindful of these things, that we might praise you, that we might give you great praise and thanks, and also so that we might be urgent in our proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Lord, we pray even as we come to the gathering here shortly this morning, as we gather to sing, that we would sing more heartily because we know these things this morning, that we would listen more attentively to your word um, because of the amazing and cosmic realities that are true in, in Scripture. Help us, O oh Lord God, we ask. Um, bless us as we come together this morning. Help us to encourage one another. If there are any unbelievers that join us this morning, I pray that, they, that you would work in their hearts in such a way that they might... 1 Corinthians 14 says, fall on their face and acknowledge that God really is among you and that you would grant repentance. We ask these things and we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.